We began a series three weeks ago entitled, How to Become a Shareholder in the Kingdom of Heaven. If, if, if I said to you, you should invest in the stock market, one of your first questions to me would be, in what company? I don't know anything about the stock market. I don't know any companies. And it's pretty similar when it comes to the kingdom of God. It's easy to say. You should increase your investment in eternity. Jesus says that many times. But how? How do I do that? That's maybe not quite so simple. And last week, we looked at exactly what the Bible says about how our investment portfolio, if you like, is built up eternally. This goes for all of us. It's, there's four areas of investments that you put in when you're living that if, we, if our motivations and our attitudes are right, will have eternal consequences. Shocking stuff, you know. Will last forever. There's your giftings. Everybody's got a gift. More than that, every person has a gift for which you are accountable directly to Christ when you die. So it's not just having a gift. It's not an idle thing. It's something that I'm responsible for. Do you know what this is? It's His investment in me. It's God's investment in me. He's put something in me, and He's told many parables that when I die, I'll be looking for the return on that investment. And the person who doesn't use their gifts, sorry folks, I don't mean to scare anybody, but the person, we read it last week, it was the parable of the talents. The person who didn't use their gift, what did Jesus call them? What was the word he used? Ah, come on guys, get with it, thank you. Wicked. Scary stuff. Wicked. He didn't say, oh well, never mind, go on. He called them wicked. All because he had given a gift they hadn't pursued it. They hadn't unearthed it. One guy hid it because he was embarrassed, proud actually, about what people will think of him or her. Okay? So there's our gifts we're accountable for, and that's how we invest in eternity. There's our calling that's largely geographical, but not only. It's the city or country to which we're called. And then there's the big area, the functioning, which will take up the vast majority of your life in every way. It's also the greatest area of your reward in heaven will be just functioning apart from your gifting, apart from your ministry, apart from your calling as such, the work we do in the kingdom and finances. Those four areas are what we should be conscious of, investing intelligently, intentionally in the kingdom, gifts, callings, functioning, and finance. So, which of the four does the devil attack the most? Answer, functioning. You leave your gift alone. Most people probably mess up their gift themselves anyway, right? Because of bad attitudes. But functioning, if he can stop you functioning, number one, he's messed up the greatest source of your eternal reward. And secondly, he can stop you actually achieving your calling in life, actually entering into, actually using that gifting, right? Because functioning is a crucial, crucial element. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 11. Jesus alludes just a little bit to this in, in many other places, but you'll have heard this scripture many times and maybe don't fully understand it. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And look at verse 14. For many are invited, or many are called, 
calling. But few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. And Jesus, like Paul and Peter and the other writers in the Bible here, or the, um, he was speaking at this time, use Olympic terms. They were common terms in those days. And the picture here is of Olympians, if you like, being called. Imagine the Olympics are being held in Glasgow in 2014 or something. And the city council called together a hundred long-distance runners. Many are called, but it's a way off yet. Got a little bit of training to do yet. So all those people come together. We're all called. Now the training starts. And it's got nothing to do with running. It's got nothing to do with your gifting. You're going to have to learn to live right, eat right. All the disciplines that surround a runner's life. And as the time goes by, guess what? They start to drop off. Many are called. And as the years go by and the Olympics approach, what started out as a hundred men can whittle its way down to a handful. And this is the chosen that Christ is talking about. Those who are left at the end of the training. Now, please listen to me, folks. Don't ever underestimate. I mentioned to you last week, I think last week's message is probably one of the most significant messages you'll ever hear in your life. One of the most important, and I say that for one reason only, because it concerns forever, forever, unceasing, unending, that's what it concerns. So don't treat it lightly, guys, but look at those areas of investment. Don't underestimate the importance of waiting on God in the right way and functioning in the kingdom, because for me, as I shared, this is the key. Don't get all hot under the collar about using your gifting, because most people actually end up going backwards for the want of going forwards. Do you know that? Do you know if you get in a car, a high-speed car, and you put your foot on that accelerator full throttle, and you take the handbrake off, and you let up the clutch, do you know what will happen? Backwards. The car actually spins backwards. You're pushing too hard, trying too hard. And in my experience, so, especially those coming out of Bible colleges, so keen to go forward, they actually end up going backwards. Because they just take the foot off the clutch, lad. Slow down a little bit. Take it easy. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. God will get you where He wants you to be. Not a problem. There's a lot of functioning to do in the kingdom. Perhaps decades. Perhaps years. I don't know. That's up to God. But you will have to learn to do that and to do it with such a good attitude and for as long as is necessary. And then you will end up using your gifting in a proper way and hopefully entering your calling. Like Jesus, right? So Jesus is born. Son of God? Yes, but he's a carpenter. A carpenter. Monday. Six chairs and three tables, Jesus. Come on. Hurry up. I'm the son of God. What's going on? I didn't come here for this. And in all those years, 30 years, so-and-so sick next door, are they? Hmm. I'd love to go and pray for them. Can't yet. Got to function. And in all that time, what's happening him is exactly what needs to happen me. 
I'm being changed so that the use of my gifting is acceptable to God and thus has eternal rewards. 30 years Jesus had to wait in the shadows. John the Baptist the same and the prophets the same. They enter onto the scene of your Bible and disappear again. They have their moment and then they're gone. The Bible tells you very little other than so-and-so was a farmer functioning. And Jesus, not so much gifted as a carpenter, but knew the way to achieve his call was to function first and to go through those disciplines. And thus, John the Baptist came as the herald, and you know the rest of the story. So last week, we looked at the, the great importance of those four areas. And we looked largely at our attitudes to giftings and callings and how they'll mess up your eternal reward if you're not careful. This week, we're going to look at motivations, the motivation of our heart, a very important thing also. You know, rocket scientists tell us that when they're launching a rocket, there's, there's fine details involved in that. And if they're just a little bit off this way, or just a little bit off that way, the end result is a disaster. And so it is with my motivation and yours. Now, I can tell you, folks, I have changed the motivation of my heart so much over the years, you know? I had a, quite a low self-esteem when I first got saved. And you know what? When you get saved and you're a nobody, sometimes just getting saved, you can feel like a somebody. You with me? And you get, that sort of happened to me. And the first years, the early years of my ministry, I can remember a lot of my motivations must have been absolutely ridiculous. Doing things for my own glory, doing things because I liked approval, the approval of others. And it's only over time that you, and good company that you actually start to iron out, hey, do you know what? Why do I do this stuff I do, man? Why am I like this? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who, you know, who am I? And of course, in relation, not so much to, to those emotional dynamics, but in relation to your eternity, take a look at Genesis, just in case you think emotion, um, motivations aren't important. Genesis chapter 4 and verses 3 to 7, where Cain and Abel bring their offerings, your offering, you know, that's your, if you like your finance, was one of the four. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now, you always got to pay very careful attention to the illustrations and the stories that are in the beginning of your Bible. I know Ken Ham labors that point a lot. He's absolutely right. It means these are primary things. These are things that I need to know about early. And right there at the beginning, Cain knew that he was bringing his offering to the king of kings. But he had a sloppy attitude. A sloppy motivation. What does it matter? Here, some vegetables, Lord. He knew that it was supposed to cost him fat portions. But he had grown sloppy, casual, in his approach to God, forgotten who it was he was making the offering to. Now, the end result was God did not accept the sacrifice, and thus there's no reward. Thus, he loses that shareholding, if you like. So, motivations, the motivations of our heart definitely have eternal consequences. 
In fact, let me read to you from 1 Corinthians, if you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This talks about the end of our days and what will happen to the works of our lives, what we did. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12. And I'll read from verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds for no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood or hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. He will be, sorry, it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. That is, quality, your attitudes to your ministry, and your giving, your attitudes, and your motivations. That's what, that, 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 that's your quality there. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward, his eternal shareholding. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss, and he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Listen a moment. It's not just about working in the kingdom. It's not just about my gifting. It's not just about tithing and faith pledging. The Bible talks about it like this. Acceptable sacrifices. Acceptable sacrifices. And don't be as one who beats the wind, one who makes many sacrifices. Maybe work your finger to the bone in the same book. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says exactly that. What good is it if I give my even my body in the flames? If the motivation of my heart is not right, it has no eternal reward. So in the beginning of your Bible, we have the story of Cain and Abel to try and sort out the Cain's from the Abel's. And in this congregation and wherever you are listening or watching, all over the world, there will be Cain's and there will be Abel's. And we would be very wise to just stop the bus a moment and ask ourselves who we are. Cain was driven in what he did. Abel was called. And there's a big difference in the two. In fact, I've entitled your message today, Driven or Called. Which am I? I know there may be some gray areas in there, but we'll work through a little bit of an analysis of both types of people and I can still see some of the both types in me. Work in progress, amen. A driven person is quite easy to recognize because they're driven by accomplishment. It's all about what they do. They have to do to be. I have to work to, like, to exist, otherwise I've got no existence, and that's not right. It's not what you do that should, you know, analyze you or uh, describe you. It's who you are. And that's a very... Let me give you an, an, an example to explain the root of this and what I mean by driven by accomplishment. Let's say there's a child and they're growing up with parents who are not very affirmative. You know, they don't give them a lot of affirmation, don't encourage them a lot, but the parents love them. They're just not very good parents. So they don't get a lot of encouragement and the child goes to school and one day there's a race and they get in the race and they run the race and guess what? They come first, and everybody goes, whoa! And for the first time, the actual slap on the back, I exist. I'm somebody. I've just done something, and I like that approval. I like that being noticed or whatever. Next day, new trainers, new tracksuit, 6 o'clock, up, run, and run. 
and run. And that person might still be running when you meet them in their 30s or 40s and you say, um, what are you chasing, friend? What was it way back then that was absent or missing in your upbringing that causes you now to, to exhaust yourself in the pursuit of title after title or whatever? What is it in you? Because it needs to be fixed. Who you or what you do must never define you. You cannot be defined by your career. You cannot be defined by your gifting. Because guess what? When the job is taken from you, you will come tumbling down. Right? True? When the title is removed or the task is removed, you will be stripped bare. And then you'll know just how close you actually are to Jesus. And friends, I reinforce to you, some people have more of a relationship with the work they do than they do with Jesus Christ. And they must be busy all the time, must be in ministry all the time, because their relationship with the living God is so weak. And that is a bad foundation. That is no foundation. It's a relationship God wants with you, not the work of your hand. You're not needed, right? That's not where this should start. That's a bad premise. So if what I do, my job, my career, my ministry, my family, if these things don't define me, what does? Well, what does is the fact that I'm a born-again Christian and Jesus Christ is my Savior. There's nothing else that I can rely on other than that. You know what? Look at me a minute. Mark my words. What you do in life will change. It will change. You may be a happily married man today. You could be a widower tomorrow. You may be a mum today. You might not be tomorrow. You could be employed today. You might be unemployed tomorrow. What you do in life will change. As sure as eggs is eggs, right? That my mother was happily married for 50-something years. She's now alone. Things have turned. The world has turned. Her life has changed. Her identity can't be so tied up with that that her whole world falls. And it didn't. She's fantastic. So it's not what I am in the world or my career or my gifts or any of these things that actually define me. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what defines me. That's what makes me different. That's what makes me different. And if He is not my all in all, as Paul puts it, then I'm in trouble. I'm fractured. I was traveling through Britain with Ray Belfield. He's one of my overseers. He's about 77 now. Ray, he's a wise, wise, wise man. I was listening intently. Ray can talk. Hallelujah. He's got the gift of talking, I can tell you that. <laughs> we were driving along. He was telling me the stories of his life. And this is what he said. Listen, he said, Mike, I have got to learn to not try and live up to my past achievements. And this is a 70-odd-year-old man driving down the motorway very fast, incidentally. I have got to learn not to try and live up to my past achievements. I led the biggest church in Britain. I built it myself from nothing. Many people blind saw. Cripples walked. BBC cameras coming in to our church, following us on the news. Real miracles broadcast across Britain. 
everybody in those days. But I've got to learn that times change and I must keep moving and not be identified by something I did back then. That was a season. And I'll die if I try to hanker after it. I've got to move on. And man, they were precious words to me from an older and wiser man. I was thinking, right. I took note of that, and that's why I'm telling you now. I took note of that because I thought that's good advice, brother. Good advice. Don't let your identity be tied up in what you do, even if it's miracles, even if it's a fantastic thing like the epoch they had there in Manchester. Wonderful. But it's a disaster for me in the long term if that becomes my identity. Listen to me. If that becomes your identity, God will take it off you. Like a child with a rattle. You give them a gift, something you expect them to enjoy. But the focus becomes the gift and not the giver. And God said of Saul, I am sorry I made you king. God, forgive me. Wow. I don't ever want to hear those words, man. I don't ever want to hear that said of me by my God. I am sorry that I made you king because of your attitude to the office I gave you. Terrible! But the child becomes focused on the gift, pushes the giver away, and then what happens? The parent has to prize their hands until the child begins to focus back on the giver where they are safe. Amen? And we must not get into that position. Now, I don't want to make it seem as if we shouldn't get any enjoyment out of ministry. We do. I love ministering. I, I actually enjoy to preach, and that was not always the case because I'm, I'm quite shy. You might not believe that, but I am. I'm quite naturally a shy person. But I enjoy ministry. Now, forgive the word buzz, but you know what I mean. You get a certain excitement out of ministry. I'm glad to minister. I'm happy to preach. It encourages me. I'm pleased when I'm able to release my gifting. There's nothing wrong with that. It's perfectly normal, perfectly good. Let me give you an example. You see, the Scriptures speak of good ambition and bad ambition. You know that? Two different types. There's a good way to be ambitious in the kingdom, and there's a bad way. Pastor Elia, forgive me for using you as an example all the time, but it's a compliment when I use people as an example. Pastor Elia, I mean, if I was having the pastor's meeting next week, right? And let's just say I say, right, we've had a phone call. There's a big healing meeting in Birmingham, and they're asking for somebody to go and preach at it. I wonder if any of you guys would want to go. <laughs> Elia would be jumping out of his skin. Me! Me! Send me! I'll go! Good? Or bad? Very good. Very good. So you should. So you should. In fact, if you didn't, you wouldn't be at that pastor's table, friend because you haven't got over your own pride yet. You're trying to hide your gift. You're frightened of what people think of you. Everybody's got to swallow this stuff and get on with your life, get on with your ministry and take the flack. Hello. So you need to say, yes, me. You need to get over yourself, guys, and stop letting other people judge you. I'm looking for the best singer here. Who would that be? Someone needs to say, that's probably me. How do you feel about that? Does that challenge you? Who does she think? She, who does he think? Now get over it. Get over yourself. You need to accept that you're gifted. You're a child of God. That does set you apart. Don't be embarrassed about these things. It's worldly thinking. So there's, there is a sense 
in which you do get a lot of encouragement and a lot of good and a lot of benefit out of ministering. Amen. No problem. Of course, you just be sure that you keep that in the right way. Keep it balanced. Keep it healthy. So you can recognize a driven person because they've always got to accomplish something. They've always got to be doing something. The worst thing you can do to a driven person is tell them to sit there today in the church and do nothing. What? Donya, next Saturday, don't go on the street team. Sit down. And all of a sudden, do you know what you're left with? You're left with you and him. Chickens come home to roost. And you find yourself. I've been in ministry and out. And I know both sides of this. And I was so tied to ministry that God had to pluck me out and put me on a factory line. I'm not going to go there. Put me on that factory line so I could find myself again and separate me from my rattle. Bless God for doing that. I thank you, Lord, for doing that. After nine years full-time, I couldn't put the thing... My, my identity had somehow become tied up with what I did. And I love you too much to see you go on like that. So I'm going to pull you aside. Oh man, it's a crucifixion it is. But it's the best thing for you. You can recognize those who are driven because accomplishment is all they strive for, doing stuff. They have little regard for integrity very often. They may have limited people skills. And that goes for being around people. You know when you're driven? When this meeting ends, do you know what you'll do? You'll go home. Because why do you want to spend time with people? Driven people don't want to spend time with people. They'll be straight through that door. Because it's about them and what they do. Not about the body. Not about, you know, koinonia, fellowship. And you can tell the driven types, I'll do my thing and I'm gone because it's all about me, isn't it? No. You can tell the driven types very often by a bad temper because maybe they're not getting the way or moodiness up and down in those ways. And what are they driven by? Well, I've been driven by all these things. Look at this. Driven by guilt. You can be driven by guilt instead of thankfulness to God. In fact, let me share with you an illustration about that. God pulls me out of ministry. I'm standing on a factory line. I'm doing my work and I feel so backslidden. Does your workplace ever make you feel backslidden? <laughs> oh, the language. and the, It was awful. So foreign to me. I hated that. I was a world, worlds away from where I'd been for all those years. And I just didn't know what to do. I felt like so lost. And, and I hadn't witnessed to too many people. And guess what I felt? Guilty. <laughs> and so driven by guilt... I went to one of my co-workers and I said, Joe, come here a minute. Can I have a chat with you a second? Driven by guilt, not love. Only because I felt bad. I turned to him and started to share the gospel. And he looked at me. And when I finished, he said, do you know what, Mike? You can do better than that. And just, a lost man knew the motivation of my heart was not love. A lost man knew nothing about God, but he's enough of a human being to know the motivation in what you're telling me is not good. It's not God, so you can do better than that. Wow. Great dismissal that was. I learned a lot. <laughs> right? I was driven by guilt, and I'm sure you will be too. Maybe you've shared the gospel in guilt. Watch that. 
You can be driven by fear instead of out of obedience to God. Well, that's no good because if you're frightened of God in the wrong sense and you're preaching the gospel, you're going to give off a spooky perception of God. God's a good God. Amen. God is good all the time. Sent His Son to save souls. Couldn't be better. Amen. But if you've got this fear attitude, you're going to give off a spooky God scenario and then people won't listen to you then either. But the biggest reason why you can re- and how you can recognize those who are driven and the biggest reason that drives people is definitely low self-esteem. It's a low you know, feeling of themselves that they're not worth anything, that they're not valued. And that's a crisis. It's an absolute crisis. Je- Jeanette, Jeanette can't make me happy. What a nutcase would I be as a husband? Imagine me as a husband saying that it's her responsibility to make me happy. Well, I guarantee you I'm going to be unhappy if that's the case. She can't say it's my responsibility to make her happy. You're all looking very puzzled at the moment. So whose responsibility is it to make me happy? Me. Me. I've got the book, The Laws of Joy. I've got them right here. It's not your responsibility. I'll do whatever I can to make you happy. But ultimately, I can't do that if you don't play ball, right? And get on with life. You can't you know, distance these or, or project these onto other people, folks. No relationship will make you happy. No, you can't rely on people. No task you do will ever make you happy. No position you ever achieve, no title you ever get will ever make you. No amount of money will make you happy. And the Bible puts it very succinctly like this. My soul finds rest in God alone. Right? So, Jeanette, you don't need to make me happy. I don't demand that of you. I'll try to make you happy, and you can try, but I don't demand it of you, or I'm going to be miserable, aren't I? So, there are some of the reasons, or some of the ways you can recognize drivenness within yourself, and it's got to come out sometime. The second, that's the first category. The second category is those who are called. And how do you recognize them? Well, they are typically a good steward of their own home. It's a very good sign when you enter a home and you find it in order. I like that. I like to see good, you know, home structures. That's a good sign of a called person. They've got their lives together in that regard. A called person knows who they are. They're, they're, they're not confused about that. And they know their place. They know their position, if you like, within the church. And I go back to my rattle again, if you like. You know, the church is not here to facilitate you. We're not here to, the church is not here to serve you and to let you do your thing. Okay, whatever your thing is. You're here to serve the church. It's the other way around. I had this one lady and she used to write poems, very long poems. Cool. They went on forever. And I let her read a few of them out, you know, sometimes, now and again, when we had time. But I couldn't let her read them out all the time. One day she comes to church and says, Pastor, I've written a new poem. Amen. Can I read it? I said, no, no, not today. There's too much else on today. A little bit of time. I've got another. I'm sorry, we're still, we're, we're, if we get a moment somewhere, we'll put that poem in. Well, she was really offended at that. Couldn't understand why I wouldn't let her do that. And I remember having to explain to her, listen, the people who come here this morning come for three things. Worship, the Word, 
and fellowship. But I guarantee you, they didn't get up early, travel across the city to come and listen to the poem. No offense, but they didn't. And they need to get what they came for, right? Because that's our job. That's the church's job. Do you know what they didn't come for? So that you can do your thing. That's not what they're here for. So I appreciate your gifting. But right now, instead of that being a gifting, do you know what it is? It's annoying. Like the rattle. It's like, you know, you buy your husband and you drill for Christmas. That's it. Everything's going to get it. What can I drill? Put it away. You know, or a hammer. Go around, hammer. Put the gift down because it's beginning to become a bit of a nuisance. And when the church wants your gift, they will ask for it. This is not about you. This is not about you doing your thing or any of that. It's about you being present, sir, and ready for service if and when I am needed. Jesus, that meant 30 years. I'm ready when you call, Father. And in that time, he's building that eternal reward. That's what's happening. You're shaping your character. But we get in the way of Jesus. Remember I told you we did the play in Singapore. Massive thing. There was about 60, 70 people in the cast. I I played the part of Jesus in it. It was 10,000 people came to that thing. And we rehearsed long and hard. There was 30 days of rehearsals. And there was a big, big, big stage and all the cast, you can imagine the crowds. Well, for 30 days, right up until the closing, you know, the night before the opening night, there was one statement that was shouted out by the director over and over and over. It's like people just couldn't get it. And the statement was, don't upstage Jesus. Don't upstage Jesus. And what would happen is, I would be getting crucified or I'd be healing someone. The, the people would be so into their part that they would run around in front that the crowd couldn't see Jesus. Because they were in the way, doing their thing. And it amazed me because even after 30 days, we're still crying out. And the director, the guy called Mark Dackel, was so frustrated. Can't you get it? Get out of the limelight. Get out of that. Stop that. But it, I mean, it was actually, we pulled it off, but it wasn't easy. So these are the ways you know someone who's called, someone who knows who they are, someone who knows that they're a steward of the gift. That means you hold it and you bring it out when it's needed by the church. You don't annoy the church with what you want to do your thing, blah, blah, blah. A person who's secure in themselves. (gasps) Sorry, Elia, it's you again. Sorry, but it is. (laughs) You see, Pastor Elia is a very good example because he's secure in himself. And let me tell you why. I mentioned to you last week, the Sunday nights have been fantastic. And he's moving in an anointing of healing. And when the meeting ends, because he leads up part of the cleaning team, he's got a hoover in his hand. Now, do you get the picture? Who am I? Am I a, a healer used by God or am I a cleaner? Do you know what an insecure person does? Get the hoover away. Get the hoover away. I'm a man of God, used in healing. Push the hoover away. <laughs> but when you're secure in your identity, do you know what you say? Here, give me that. I'm happy to function 
Now, your perception, that's up to you. A secure person is not, they don't have their security in what they do. They have their security in who they are, right? And that's why functioning and multitasking becomes very important in the kingdom, because it's through that 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 you enter your gift, you enter your call, when your identity within is secure. You're not frightened of these things. They're secure in ministry. Is there a correct way? Of course there's a correct way to pursue eternal rewards, pursue your calling, pursue your gifting, out of love for the Lord, out of obedience, not out of fear in, that, in, in any wrong sense, and not out of a need to be someone. Last week we were looking at the need to be needed and how massive an issue that is. This is a fundamental church builder, really. It's one of the foundations of any church, or should be. People come in here and say, I love the atmosphere here. How, how, how come people are so sweet and so easygoing? That's why. That's why. It's one of the main reasons why. Because you've got to get the chips off the shoulder and you've got to build that in early amongst us that we realize, as we mentioned with Kay last week, only here for one reason. Because God Almighty and His grace, not because you need me, you don't, but because God Almighty and His grace tapped me one day and said, hey, would you do this? Absolutely, Lord. Don't ever estimate, underestimate the need to be needed, folks. Do you know this? Social services in the United Kingdom take out national adverts twice a year in the newspapers at the beginning of school time. And the adverts were taken out because they started to observe that housewives began to go to the doctors for tranquilizers, antidepressants, at the same time, there was two spikes in the year at the end of school terms. And they couldn't figure out why are we getting this massive surge of all these women turning up saying, I'm depressed, I'm this, I'm that. And as they research, ah, it's the end of school term. Hundreds of thousands of families with the child now left school. Hundreds of thousands of mums who always were needed. And now all the other mums are bringing their kids to school and these mums have got no children. They start to get depressed, down to the doctor, I'm very depressed. You need to be needed. That was the problem. And so they actually have a hotline at term times to cope with the families to try and stop them going for drugs to cure that problem. It's not the solution. So what I'm saying is don't underestimate the, the, the need to be needed factor because you've got to get it out of your system. I put a little warning there just about a quarter way down the page. Some people hear these truths and maybe you're hearing it for the first time. Some people overreact and they just pull right back out of ministry. They get so frightened that they just back off. Don't do that. That's the wrong perspective to take entirely. But go for it. Go for it, right? Face up to it. Accept your responsibilities. Accept your tasks. Accept your functions. I invite the worship team back, please. Accept your gifts and accept your functions, whatever they might be, and get very accustomed to that. <coughs> Excuse me. Many years ago, I suppose about seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, God spoke to me one day and He said a statement. I've written it on the bottom of your page. It's a very important statement to me anyway because I see it as the start of everything. He said to me this, contentment is the starting place, not the goal. And I had to go and think about that and pray about that. What on earth does that mean? 
And of course, it speaks for itself. There's nothing I will ever do that will actually make me happy. I can't stand here and say, oh, when I do this, I'm going to be content. That would mean contentment would be my goal. When I get married, that's it. When I have kids, when I get that five letters after my name, then. But contentment as a goal is a disaster. Because you'll always be that next goal. There'll always be that horizon. Contentment is not a goal, friends. Contentment must be my starting place. So here and now, today, you sit there. And do you know what I want you to do for a moment? Nothing. Nothing. And just get to know him. Don't be like me, where God had to pull me out and push me in to a factory line and learn the hard way. 35 weeks standing there. I even counted the weeks, you know, until I got that out of my system, just so that he could get my ear, get my heart. Where is your relationship with Jesus this morning, apart from what you do? Because he wants your heart, not your work. Bow your heads. Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the work of the kingdom. And it is the greatest of honors that you should permit us and allow us to engage in it in any way. But we ask this morning a particular request that you would forgive us if that work clouds you out. If we upstage Jesus in our zealousness and our keenness to serve you, we run past you. And today, in the name of Jesus, we put the rattle down and we embrace Daddy, would you pick us up? God, would you heal our hearts and forgive us for being so distracted all the time? And we want to confess that we need nothing but you. That there's no one and nothing in this world or in this life that can satisfy us but you. And God, I thank you for families and wives and children and careers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But we are not deceived. My soul finds rest in God alone. Just keep your head bowed, your eyes closed before Kay comes to minister to us again. And you just take a moment to take a hold of Jesus. Let him take a hold of you.